Inside the real-life time travel experiment that inspired Stranger Things, Hey Team was Stranger Things Season 4 coming I wanted to dive into the real-world events that inspired it. The first video you will see is Preston Nichols and this video will end with an even crazier video of him. This all brings out a whole new level to the show. In a parallel way so that people can actually have parallel lifetimes going on. Well, time is essentially like a real estate. In other words, as you and I can walk through real estate from point A to point B, all time coexists and it's possible to go from point A to point B if you can find the path to go directly from. Some people believe it's taking the linear timeline, bending it over next to each other and creating a wormhole or a punch through from time A to time B. And so when you're existing at the, you're at the same time, literally, like, you know, you mm -hmm. can fold it over and wow, here I am, here I am. <laughs> at the, um, what about creating alternate paths then? Can, are we doing that with our lives because of that ability for time to sort of warp or fold over on itself? Some of us are doing multiple mm -hmm. timelines if we have the capability of going from, let's say, today to mm -hmm. two weeks ago and working the whole two weeks over again. What will happen is the first mm -hmm. pass will become an alternate reality since you cannot have a time paradox, which is mm -hmm. where you and you exist, mm -hmm. two of you at the same time. That cannot be. So one of the passes, typically the first pass, will become an alternate reality, an alternate timeline. Now what did they do though with Al when they uh, allowed him to grow up the same time he was already in the Navy? Well, you know? Al's story is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. They allowed Al to go through and have his whole life from mm -hmm. 1916 to 1943. Actually, I think it's 1947. Then they reportedly had the capability of regressing Al back physically to a baby and then sent him through a time portal and inserted him in another family and he grew up all over again. There were two Al Bielik's. One is Edward Cameron and mm -hmm. one is Al Bielik. And even if they meet, there's going to be no terrible things happening mm -hmm. because of the fact that there was a step back in time means he is meant to coexist two places in one time. I did the same thing. At Montauk, I was working at BJ's. At the same time, I was working at AIL. Well, did you get two paychecks? Did you get to enjoy no, all I that didn't. abundance? No. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, that's a shame. <laughs> I was actually working two timelines, one at BJ's mm -hmm. and one at Montauk. In other words, I would be in Melville doing my regular eight-hour-a-day job. At the same time, I would be out at Montauk doing my job at the, as well. Now, what would happen to my memories is memory is keyed in by where you are and what timeline you're on. Mm -hmm. the, as far as memory goes, the first pass through would become an alternate reality memory Although, theoretically, I could have called myself if I knew how to get through the switchboards and do it. Inside the real-life time travel experiment that inspired Stranger Things, the hype surrounding Netflix's Stranger Things is proving harder to kill than that creepy Demogorgon monster, 
and it's only going to grow now that season 1, 2 and 3 is out in the world, with season 4 inevitably coming the fan frenzy is a testament to the megahit's intricately layered details. While we've gone deep on many aspects of our favorite show from this summer, one element of the series' backstory bears closer examination. A real-life government experiment that inspired Stranger Things, known among paranormal buffs as the Montauk Project. The cultural phenomenon that we now know as Stranger Things was sold under the working title Montauk, and before producers switched the setting to a small town in Indiana, the eerie action of season 1 was going to take place way out at the eastern end of Long Island. But the thread loop through the eight Stranger Things episodes, the idea that contact between Eleven and the Demogorgon may have opened the portal to the Upside Down, has roots in an incident that conspiracy theorists believe occurred in Montauk in 1983, and ended secret experiments that the U.S. military had been conducting on children for four decades. That far-fetched scenario that corresponds to Stranger Things is only part of the Long Island legend. So hold on to your egos, the story of the so-called Montauk Project gets even weirder than what we've seen on the Netflix gem so far. Exposing the Montauk Project, rumors that the U.S. government had been conducting experiments in psychological warfare in Montauk at either Camp Hero or the Montauk Air Force Station began to bubble up in the mid-1980s. Preston B. Nichols legitimized the theorizing when he detailed the supposed events in a series of books. In the Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, 1982, Nichols recovered repressed memories about his stint as a subject in a mysterious experiment. Soon, others involved with the Montauk Project came forward to corroborate some of Nichols' seemingly outlandish claims. As these and other subjects recovered more of their memories, they gave numerous interviews about their involvement in experiments involving space, time, and other dimensions. Depending on the interview, and when it was documented, the scope of what was happening in Montauk is expansive enough to include many other conspiracies. As of now, the going narrative leading up to the 1983 incident begins during World War II with a much more famous covert military operation. How the Philadelphia Experiment ties in in October 1943, the U.S. military supposedly conducted secret experiments in the naval shipyard in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, on a quest to discover a way to foil Nazi radar so that they could safely transport supplies to the Allies in Europe. The Navy has never admitted to any of these tests taking place, but according to conspiracy theorists as far back as 1955, it not only succeeded in uncovering how to make its ships invisible to radar, but accidentally managed to cause a battleship to travel, well, no one's quite sure. To another time, into a different dimension? The ship went somewhere, and after the military learned about the negative effects overexposure to their version of the upside down had on the crew, it shut the project down. Hollywood got its hands on this story before Stranger Things. The 1984 movie The Philadelphia Experiment, adapted from a book about this conspiracy, follows two sailors serving on the USS Eldridge during World War II. Just like in, history, the experiment crew finds itself and the ship blinked 40 years forward in time. Once in the future, they realize that the Philadelphia Experiment has been revived in the 80s, but as a way for the government to make an ICBM shield. Thanks. Cold War. The two experiments connect through a time wormhole and the generators on the Eldridge keep the portal open as it begins to suck in matter from 1984. The Philadelphia experiment underwhelmed at the box office, but for a select few, the movie triggered a new, and old, life. A portal to Montauk after seeing the Philadelphia experiment in 1988, 57-year-old Al Bielik couldn't shake the eerie feeling that he'd seen it somewhere before. 
Undergoing various forms of New Age therapies, Bielik was able to uncover repressed memories of having worked on the Montauk project in the 1970s and 80s. He also ascertained that his memories had been locked away to keep the experiment secret. As his memories came flooding back, he learned that his name wasn't Al Bielik. After all, born Edward Cameron, he'd also worked on the Philadelphia experiment with his brother, Duncan Cameron, when both men were in their mid 20s. A few years later, Al Bielik presented his story at a mutual UFO network conference. The Philadelphia experiment was real, he said, and he was the proof, having lived out the World War II section of the movie. Bielik claimed that, sometime in the 1940s, Nikola Tesla figured out how to make the USS Eldridge invisible and, in the process, opened up a time wormhole into the future that sucked in the ship. The Cameron brothers were on board, jumping off the vessel and landing at Montauk's Camp Hero, on August 12, 1983. The military promptly sent them back through the wormhole with a mission, destroy the equipment on the Eldridge. According Bielik, the brothers completed their mission, though that didn't stop the government from doing more experiments on building portals into the future. During a 1990 speech for the Mutual UFO Network, Bielik described in vague terms how he'd been de-aged had his memory wiped, and had been forced to live out the rest of his life as, Al Bielik. He explained how, in the early 1960s, he, as Edward, had convinced his father to have another child so they could port Duncan's consciousness from 1983 into the sibling born in 1963. Bielik referred to this version of Duncan as a, walk-in soul. He also suggested that a 1983 accident, as detailed as he gets, caused him to begin aging rapidly. When psychic powers became psychic espionage Bielik's stories circulated and gained the attention of Preston Nichols, who would befriend Bielik and tell the Cameron brothers, and his own, story. In the Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, Nichols writes of his time working at Camp Hero on the secret experiments. Specifically, during the 1970s, he claimed, he'd worked with Bielik on something called the, Montauk Chair, a piece of furniture that used electromagnetics to amplify psychic powers. Duncan Cameron, the walk-in soul, child version born in 1963, was found to have psychic powers and became the focus of many of the Montauk chair experiments. Apparently, Duncan could manifest objects just by thinking about them while in the Montauk chair. One of the experiments Nichols describes sounds a lot like the experiment being performed on Eleven before she opens the portal to the upside down. The first experiment was called the seeing eye. With a lock of person's hair or other appropriate object in his hand, Duncan could concentrate on the person and be able to see as if he was seeing through their eyes, hearing through their ears, and feeling through their body. He could actually see through other people anywhere on the planet. The abducted kids Nichols continued to experiment with Duncan, who was such a powerful psychic that no one suspected that he was a man from the distant past inserted into a new body. He tried to harness his adept subject's powers in the Montauk chair to conduct mind control experiments using special radio dishes at Camp Hero. This is where the other children come in. In his book, Nichols writes of other boys being brought in and experimented on. Some were sent through a portal into the unknown of space-time. Stranger Things lifts this theory. The name, Eleven, suggests there are or were likely ten other subjects. In Nichols' book. These abductees are known as the Montauk Boys, and since Nichols and Bielik started speaking about their regained memories, other Long Island men have rediscovered that they were frequently abducted from their homes by Camp Hero scientists who wanted to break them psychologically so that they could implant subconscious commands. 
Not to create a crazy Stranger Things theory out of thin air, but who's to say that Hopper's daughter really died of cancer? Duncan establishes a portal after several years of experimenting with Duncan in the Montauk chair. Nichols claims that they could reliably travel to other times and places, even to Mars. Eventually, they were able to program Duncan with some basic commands so that the poor kid didn't need to be confined to the chair all the time. How kind. At one point, however, Nichols' superiors told him to turn on the Montauk chair and leave it running, through August 12, 1983. As the story goes, by having another time travel machine switched on, the Montauk project successfully created a time wormhole to 1943, with power at both ends. That's how Ed and the Duncan Cameron of 1943 came through the portal, and that events described by Al Bielik occurred. Nichols kept the Duncan of 1943 away from the 1963 version, but quickly realized that time travel was way too complex and far too dangerous to be messing around with, torturing children, though, just fine. He and three colleagues hatched a plan to use Duncan to shut down the project. Duncan summons a monster from the Montauk project, experiments in time, we finally decided we'd had enough of the whole experiment. The contingency program was activated by someone approaching Duncan while he was in the chair and simply whispering, the time is now. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious. And the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry and nasty. But it didn't appear underground in the null point. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find. And it smashed everything in sight. Several different people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. Nichols had to smash all of the equipment that powered the Montauk chair before the beast disappeared back into nothingness. That incident, plus the successful time anchor that was built between August 12, 1943 and August 12, 1983, ensured that the project would be shuttered. Employees were then brainwashed and, in 1984, the lower levels of the base were filled in with cement. Even Stranger Things of the many bizarre stories of what happened at Camp Hero, Stranger Things only uses three of the core elements, portals, the monster, and children with psychic powers. But looking forward to Stranger Things Season 2, which has not yet been officially greenlit by Netflix, the ongoing rumors of government misconduct at Montauk provide many creepy options for how the story of the boys, Eleven, and Dr. Brenner works out. Some testimonials from Montauk survivors make mention of alien lifeforms, either of the classic gray-skinned variety or something weirder, like giant lizard people or extra-dimensional beings that appear in a humanoid shape made of hollow glass. The time travel element is also in play, and connections back to the Philadelphia Experiment, the conspiracy theory that gave rise to all the Montauk stories. The bulk of the Montauk project is set around the same time as Stranger Things, but true believers like Nichols and Bielik, up until he passed away in 2011, maintain that these experiments dealing with the expansion of human consciousness and future technology are still going on somewhere, somehow. In 2008, an unidentified carcass of an animal washed up on the beach of Long Island, adopting the label of the Montauk Monster, from the early 1990s version, Cameron's creation is commonly referred to as, Junior, now. Urban explorers still venture into Camp Hero on Long Island. Where some claim you can still hear screams in the abandoned tunnels. Sporadic reports that the closed base still draws military levels of power despite being, inactive, persist, and the truth about Camp Hero and what happened there continues to be concealed beneath multiple layers of rumor, myth, and the, fiction, of Stranger Things. I personally believe 
that Montauk was most likely a test bed for some of the technology interchange between the aliens and the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. That they were trying out a lot of these great ideas they got. They are also trying to replicate systems and technologies they had on the captured crash UFOs. Also, I can remember I had an office in the radar tower. It was the first office on the second floor in the back. Next to my office was another office, and I remember, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I remember a lizard man in that office. It was His Highness Draco something, I can't remember the other name. And he was about six foot, seven foot tall, had sort of like scaly skin, humanoid, he walked erect like we do, had two arms, two legs, he had a tail, but it really didn't show most of the time. He had somewhat of a humanoid face, strange eyes, a big mouth, you know, looked like what you would expect if you're going to put together a lizard man. There was a being on Star Trek called, called the Gorn that Captain Kirk fought on this planet. This man that I worked next to sort of resembled that being. Now, how did that strike you? Did, I mean, I didn't that would have, have to be a to traumatic it. experience. No, not to you? I didn't have that much to do with it. Mm-hmm. I call it it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure whether it was he or she. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have that much to do but with it. you accepted his presence as something well, normal for him. What else do you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're working next to this thing. <laughs> True. You know, it's, how are you, how are you, know, that sort <laughs> of thing. Like off the copy dollars. Yeah. Yeah. He spoke in a hissy voice, you know, hissed a lot. Uh-huh. And sort of sounded like he was loud whispering most of the time. And then the other thing that we ran across, I needed some sodium hydroxide for a special soldering project. Of course, we all know Drano is essentially sodium hydroxide. So I went to the commissary, got a can of Drano. So I took a glass, put some water in it, dissolved the Drano, and I was using this as flux of solid wood. His Highness Draco comes in, <laughs> and he said, more! <laughs> so I got another glass of water, poured some more Draco on it, handed it to him, <laughs> and the, the, the Draco was getting drunk on Draco. How the hell, like a stomach pet stuff, I don't know. So finally, he really tied a rag on. That Tune thing, that thing, he really tied on a rag. He must have drank about eight glasses of water made of the heavy, thick Drano. Yeah, I put enough in so it was thick because I was using a solder paste. And, oh, and finally, he came, came back to normal sense. He asked me, how do you make that stuff? That's the greatest stuff you've ever had. So I told him, go get some Drano. And they had, they had to keep buying more and more Drano. Because the reptilians are getting drunk on the drain. Um, were they involved in the project then, directly? I think they were there more as advisors. Mm-hmm. This is why I think they were there as advisors. Were they there of their free will? <laughs> it seemed to be. Yeah. Because they were treated well by the station management. Mm-hmm. It was almost like, Your Highness, how are you? They were kowtowing. Mm-hmm.